Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that could very further erode the Voting Rights Act. This deals with the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, case out of Arizona. At issue, two Arizona laws, the first which bars the court counting a provisional ballot cast in the wrong precinct, and the second bars the collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than a family member or a caregiver. These challenges to the Voting Rights Act are a direct response to the massive voter turnout were colored in the 2020 election. In today's hearing, a re the Republicans for the Republican National Committee admitted that they need voter suppression in order for them to win. Listen to this exchange. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing okay, an election 50 to 50. Okay, thank you. My time is up. 50. Not sure why Justice Amy Coney Barrett cut him off there. Ooh, I would have loved to hear what more he had to say. Joining us right now is Judith Brown Diana, the Executive Director Advancement Project National Office. Judith, glad to have you back on Robert Martin Unfiltered. Bottom line here is this here. Republicans need the Chiefs to win. What you're seeing is that you've been using the courts to, to deconstruct and break down how we got to this point. The Voting Rights Act has been, it's been one of the one of the most important laws ever passed in the history of the United States. It was gutted in Shelby v. Holder. Uh, just as John Roberts said, hey, there's really no need for it anymore. Look at black turnout. No, black turnout is what it was because of the Voting Rights Act. And so this case could erode Section 2. This is why Congress must act. Democrats cannot use the filibuster as an excuse not to pass a comprehensive bill that, named after John Lewis, that will fix the problems in Shelby Beholder, plus what may come down with this decision. Yep, so, Roland, I mean, first of all, let's let's put this in perspective. Like, they have been going after the Voting Rights Act for quite some time, not even just in the Shelby County case, but even before that, right? And so this is like, this isn't, it's the Voting Rights Act, and if you think about it, the attacks on affirmative action, right, it is, they are trying to dismantle all of the civil rights laws, and the Voting Rights Act being one of the most powerful of those. And so what 
what we are seeing right now is a case before the Supreme Court that would put the nail in the coffin with regard to the Voting Rights Act. We lost Section 5, which allowed um, for pre-approval before laws were changed. Now they would take away the part of the law that organizations like Advancement Project use to challenge voter suppression laws. And so, you know, we should put this in perspective. This is totally about dismantling civil rights protections. It is totally a power grab. It is totally an effort to keep power in the hands of the Republican Party at the state legislature. And they are upset, as we see in state legislatures across the country, that they have put in place or they are trying to pass new laws to make it harder for us to vote because we turned out record numbers. And they know when they make when we make it easy for people to vote, black folks are going to turn out. Well, the issue here is not just black voters, uh, Judith, and that is it's Latino voters, it's young voters. The numbers don't lie. By 2024, there'll be more Gen Z millennial voters than baby boomers. What they are trying to do, and majority of those people are people of color. That's who they're targeting. And they're targeting older voters. Bob Wilder this year. They need to contract. They need to somehow shrink the, the voting population. And so what they're doing in Georgia and then 43 other states, the bills they've introduced, this is real. And so Democrats, Kristen Sienema in Arizona, hey, get your head out of the sand and realize that your opposition to ending the filibuster, if you do not fix this, I, guess what? She will be in the, in the minority in 2022. Right. The House. I mean, this Democrats will lose the House and the Senate if the if they do not pass a comprehensive voter bill. You must expect the worst right. from this Supreme Court. That's right. We have to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Project Advancement Act passed. Um, it is important for for us to have a restoration of the voting rights law. I mean, this is this is serious. Like we like people need to be calling their senators pushing on them and saying, we don't want any excuses about anything. We have to get this protection. Because what we know is, Roland, is that, yes, the browning of America and the number of young people who turn up makes them upset because they want to maintain power. But the other thing is, we're getting ready to go into redistricting. And so not having voting rights protections as we go into redistricting and figure out how we're cutting up the political pie have no protections for black and brown people is going to be detrimental to political power, not just for 10 years, but 20 and 30 years. Yeah, I mean, simple as that. And, and, and look, the COVID bill has been passed, and I keep saying, I don't want to hear anything from Democrats. I don't want to hear jack from President Joe Biden about infrastructure. The voting bill is the next one. That's the next one. Period. I don't get Damn all this bipartisanship and uh, no, 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 no. You don't confront the voting issue. You are guaranteeing the Republicans will do political gerrymandering. You're right to cut redistricting. You're talking about controlling the courts. We see what's happening in Pennsylvania, that they want to get rid of these statewide elections for Supreme Court and go to district judges because they do not like the fact that Democrats have a majority for Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They don't like the fact that Democrats have a 4-3 majority for North Carolina Supreme Court, and the only reason the North Carolina Congressional District were overturned as racial gerrymandering is because they took control of the state Supreme Court. They won on the, well, the political gerrymandering on the federal level, but they lost on the state level, and that
that's why uh, that white judge ran against uh, ran against the sister in North Carolina and beat her by less than 400 votes. Democrats that also better pay attention cannot let Republicans control the courts because they pass laws on the legislative side, they control the courts to affirm the laws that they pass, they control the Supreme Court, they can run the table. That's right. I mean, if we look at this, all these states that are now taking uh, voter suppression laws, what they're trying to do is roll back mail-in voting, uh, not allow people to have absentee balloting without a receipt, take away the drop boxes, cut back to early voting. All of these tools that they know are the things that Sunday voting, right, when you stroll to the polls, getting rid of that. And they know that if they're able to do that in state legislatures and they've controlled the courts, you know, with all these Trump appointees, that they are going to actually get rid of all the protections that we have for civil rights. And so this is the moment in which Democrats have to have a backbone and get that bill passed. Absolutely true, Brother Annis. And that's what Brother Kishil appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Roland. Folks, you heard you just mentioned what's happening uh, there uh, in Georgia. Uh, we told you yesterday how they passed a House bill uh, when it came to this onerous voter suppression, but also in the Senate they passed a bill that gets rid of no excuse absentee voting. That took place on one of the sitting committees and now goes to the full Senate. Folks, what we are seeing again is a massive, massive attack on voting that is happening all across. And so in a moment we're going to be talking with there in Georgia, N.C. Ubat, CEO of the New Georgia Project, about this very issue. Uh, right now, though, I want to bring in my panel, Barbara Victoria Burke, uh, NMPA, uh, Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for the Institute for Environmental Justice, EPA, Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show podcast. Uh, Lauren, this is how it majors. And again, I know people might be saying, okay, Roland, I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to make it sound like this is urgent. This is urgent. I mean, what we're talking about is Republicans are playing dirty. They absolutely are scared to death. You heard them talk in that Supreme Court hearing. They are scared to death of what happened in 2020. For them to lose Georgia, Biden-Harris, for them to lose two Senate seats in Georgia, Republicans are sitting here going, wait a minute, we could be losing North Carolina next. We could be losing Georgia next. If Democrats actually got their act together in Florida, they could be competitive in Florida. We see what happened when it came to Amendment 4 there as well. They see that there's a train that's coming. There's a train that's coming, and they see it coming, and they're like, yo, we're trying to divert this train as quickly as we can, or it is going to run over us. Right, and it wasn't, of course, just Georgia with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris winning Georgia. Obviously, it was uh, Raphael Warnock and Ossoff winning Georgia. That was an unbelievable grand slam home run by the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, the Republican Party, the only thing they really know how to do is vote suppress, and they don't want to change any of their policies to make their tent bigger, to have more people come over to their side. I can never figure out why that's not part of their strategy, uh, but somehow it, it somehow never is. The other thing that needs to happen here is that Chuck Schumer needs to really wake up. You know, this idea that you're going to play nice with these people and, and he can't even get near a cannon over the line. And I get it. You know, it's a 50-50 Senate. It is a difficult situation for Chuck Schumer, but at the same time, you know, if we were talking about a close vote in the House, everybody would be talking about how Nancy Pelosi's legacy is over if she wasn't able to deliver some of these close votes. And with Schumer, he seems to have a problem right off the bat with the usual suspects, you know, in cinema and mansion. He should have known he was going to 
gotta at some point practice, practice, live. You're gonna have a ton of close votes. You know that. You know that the Senate should be 50. So, you know, being buddy buddy with these people and all that doesn't work. Schumer's been in the Senate long enough to know that. And now you're gonna get some huge monumental close votes on things like the John Lewis bill. You know, should they even take it up, which they should, but you see them already sort of punk out on the minimum wage, you know. It's like there's no fight there. It's just sort of, oh, I guess, you know, somebody's going to defect, so I guess we just have to give up and, and go away. Schumer has got to figure out a way to keep 50 people in line. He's got he's to do that, or these things, particularly on voting rights, are just going to be lost for a generation. Ben, this is real simple. You do not have 10 votes on Republican side. It doesn't exist. You don't have 10 votes. You are not going to see 10 Republicans vote for the Democrats on any deal. I don't care what it is. Maybe infrastructure. Maybe. Maybe. Keep in mind, these are the same Republicans. All, every House Republican opposed the COVID deal. That's money to their broke-ass constituents. Go back to when Obama was president. They voted against the stimulus bill. And then they went begging for the money after it passed. So, <laughs> they will vote against this and then still try to come back and try to get the money. Democrats cannot trust Republican, fine, maybe Murkowski, maybe Collins, maybe Romney, but hell, Ben Sass just voted against Mary Garland to be Attorney General, based upon what reason? Absolute politics, right? They're playing real politics, and what they're, they're playing a zero-sum game, as you heard in that clip, they plan to give nothing and take everything, and then as they deny these different pieces of legislation, they will turn around and campaign on the failure of not passing that legislation. Republicans have had this strategy for some time, and, and it's really sad that the Democratic Party isn't hip to this yet. Or perhaps they are hip to it, but they're more concerned with their friends across the aisle, or they're more concerned with protecting the institution than protecting the people, because they have more respect for the filibuster than they do for the people who need $15 an hour and for this legislation to help protect us from all the things that Republicans are doing across this country to suppress the vote. Mustafa uh, is tall. You got to be gangster. You got to play hard. Hardball, you can't play soft. This is one of those deals where, you know, Senator Joe Manchin bitched and moaned about Vice President Kamala Harris doing interviews in West Virginia, uh, like she, like, and literally saying she had to somehow get permission from him to come into West Virginia. <laughs> Senator Joe Manchin, kiss my ass. Yeah, he's not the gatekeeper. Uh, you know, Schumer and Biden better learn about throwing some bones because they're running out of time. I mean, you know, the midterms will be here before we know it. The reality of this situation is if folks lose their votes, because that's what this is really all about, black and brown folks and young people, as you said, actually losing their votes, then the agenda that you were elected on will never become real because these folks will continue to throw roadblocks and procedural things and all the, all the, all the things that they can come up with to stop you from being successful. That is the game plan. The game plan is for Joe Biden not to be successful. So you all cannot help them to achieve that goal. It's the same thing they did when Obama came in, where they said, we will make sure that he is a one-term president and that he is not successful on anything that he's moving forward on. If they showed us anything different, then we could run a different set of analyses. But we know what this game plan is. This has been the game plan for decades of dismantling these bedrock sets of laws that are in place to, to make sure that people just have the ability fully participate in the in the in the democratic process in the civic process so you know what time it is do the right thing and move quickly to get this stuff done 
of that. I told you what's happening there in Georgia, folks. I told you what the House did yesterday, what the Senate also did yesterday, trying to get of the issue of absentee ballots. Folks, what we're talking about here is a major, major uh, effort by Republicans uh, to steal the election. They are scared to death uh, of Stacey Abrams next year. They're scared to death of Patrick Raphael Warnock getting a full term in the United States Senate. Joining us right now is Insay Ufak, CEO of the New Georgia Project. Insay, we, we, we're saying, like, look, these things are coming down. Uh, they are are they are doing exactly what they said they were going to do. What are y'all doing to try to stop it? Uh, can you stop it? Uh, Republicans control both houses. They control the governor's mansion. And so uh, you see we have the lower third right there with the phone number there to call Speaker of the House, call Lieutenant Governor, call the governor. What more are y'all doing there? Um, I think that, first of all, brother, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. That we've been doing, we've been working really hard to try to elevate this issue um, as a part of the public discourse, right? Because it's not just Georgia. It's almost 34, 35 states uh, that we're talking about almost 300 bills. Now, the Republicans are playing for weeks, period, point blank, end, right? That in the marketplace of ideas, fewer and fewer people are buying what they're selling. And the only way for them to continue to hold on to power is if they cheat, is if they take a sledgehammer to our election infrastructure, to our democracy, right? That black people showed up in historic numbers, young people showed up in historic numbers in November, and then ran it back nine weeks later in January, and they're upset about it. And so um, our homies, our colleagues down in legislature, uh, from folks on the hard side, on the party side, to folks like Fair Fight are down there trying to make the case to legislators um, about why they should not support this. You know, at the, at, the, at the core, if you hate, if you abhor the attempted insurrection, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, because one, it was stupid and violent and unpatriotic and anti-democratic, also predicated on the big lie, right? The lie that there was widespread voter fraud in the January runoff or widespread voter fraud in the November general. Then you should hate these almost 300 bills that are being introduced in legislatures all across the country, including Georgia, because they're also predicated on the big lie. The idea that there's no way that black people can show up and vote uh, in historic numbers, right? That, that, that there's, um, I remember our former president on the phone call that was taped with our Secretary of State on January 2nd, there's no way I like Georgia. There's no way I lost Georgia. There are so many ways in which he lost Georgia, and so that is what we're responding to. That's what they're responding to right now, um, and that's what we're working to defeat. So we're going to go hard in the legislature, and if that doesn't work, we're going to go hard in the court of public opinion, right, that there are tons of corporations money to these elected officials, right? And at the same time, put out bold statements um, after the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, bold statements uh, in celebration of Black History Month. And this is affecting black futures. And so we are looking for them to say something in this moment. Uh, and we talked about that, first of all, that case moving forward with the grand jury there uh, investigating Donald Trump uh, trying to intimidate break the law to get them to change the voting results, so that's happening as well, but what Republicans are doing, they want to put, they want to codify this into law, and we talk about how just sadistic uh, these people are, how despicable uh, these people are, uh, to look at what they're trying to do, 
literally, you want to make it illegal to, pro- to, to give folks free food and drinks who are standing in line. I mean, again, and then restrict early voting buses to emergencies. So their whole deal is, yeah, so, they, so the idea of driving folks to the polls, they want to get rid of that. That, that, for all of this voter integrity bullshit they keep hollering, that's exactly what it is. And so when you see this stuff right here, it's real clear uh, that, and they're targeting black people. I have these two black Republicans from Georgia have the audacity yet last night. Uh, who's in the scrub? Jalen Johnson, some other dude, new emerging king on Twitter, saying, oh, how do you call this racist? Um, and I, this is what I told uh, one of them. If white folks were voting early on Sunday, if white folks had souls to the polls, they would not be changing the law. Even he had to admit that. And then, let me just go ahead and be clear. Where in the hell is Alveda King? Running around talking about you're the niece of Dr. King. Why the hell you ain't saying nothing? Where's sorry-ass Bruce LaBelle, black Republican? Where are you? Where's that punk-ass Vernon Jones, a former state representative, uh, who's saying nothing? Okay, uh, where's uh, Janelle King running around with your little Kelly Loeffler ass, you and your husband talking about getting contracts? Where's Paris Denard? Where's all Brett C.J. Pearson? Where are all you sorry-ass black Republicans who won't say a damn thing when they are specifically targeting black people? And yeah, where's that thug-ass Angie Stanton running her mouth at CPAC in Orlando? I'm going to call out all the black folks down there in Georgia who are saying nothing, and they need to be called out. I love every single part of it because you're right, Roland. Like it's hypocrisy, right? Like he's because I mean, here's the thing. I you know I've had my debates, probably not as many as you, but I've had my fair share of, of debates with Black Republicans, and they all often try to frame it as a race forward decision that they have made that they are Republicans in because they are Black, right? That because the Democrats have done Black folks so wrong. But again, this is a moment, and and I'm not giving any credence to the argument, but if there's any shred of truth to it, then they would be loud and vocal in this moment where it is so clear that these bills are designed to make it more difficult for black people to vote, and that these bills are punishment for black people leaning in and exercising their right to vote. Absolutely. Well, look, anything uh, y'all need, let us know. Simply keep us up to uh, up to uh, date of what's going on there. Uh, if y'all are planning rallies and things along those lines, let us know. It's important for us to stream that stuff out so folks know exactly uh, what's going on. And say we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Roland. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not playing games with these people, Mustafa. I'm not playing games with all of these trifling-ass black Republicans who want to run around and talk about, oh, y'all took the plantation when y'all are a bunch of Stevens in Django Unchained, saying nothing, doing nothing, as Republicans are sitting here playing these games. And then when I hit these fools up, and then a couple of them tried to say, well, we'll debate you. Bring your punk asses on. Come on the show. Because all they ever bring up is voter ID. I just showed you, and I laid it out. That's not a damn thing. Let's see. Limit Sunday voting to one optional Sunday in each county. Ballot drop boxes to be located inside early voting locations so you can only drop it off when they're open. <laughs> well, hell, what's the whole point? <laughs> you have secure ballot drop boxes 24-7. No, 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 they don't want that. Okay, they don't want that. 
okay? Then you want to sit here, ban outside funding of elections from nonprofit organizations. Oh, y'all don't want that, okay? Oh, uh, <laughs> then schedule runoffs four weeks after election day rather than the current nine weeks. All of these changes, all because they lost. They lost. Well, Lauren broke it down perfectly. You know, when, when she, um, you know, shared with us that the Republican Party refuses to create 21st century policies that actually resonate with the majority of folks in our country. So they continue to try and, you know, create a, an uneven playing field. For me, it's 21st century Jim Crowism. It's, it's 21st century uh, apartheidism that they continue to try and move forward on to disempower folks because they know folks are reclaiming their power. They understand by reclaiming their power that they also now understand that there are resources that are tied to your power. So when you vote, then you get to actually have a voice in where resources are going to go. You have a voice in the development of policy. You have a voice in addressing the issues that are going on in your communities every day. And they don't want that because when people start to have power over and over and over again, it changes the dynamics. It brings hope back into communities, and it also raises expectations, which they do not want. Because when you raise expectations, that means you're not going to accept things that have been a part of the past. Bottom line here, uh, Lauren, uh, these trifling black Republicans, and yeah, I'm saying it. I'll be the king. Gonna walk around pimping Dr. King's name, talking about that's your uncle. Well, then when are you gonna have the guts to call out Republicans? See, Colin Powell at least had the guts a few years ago when he went to North Carolina and called out the Republican governor of North Carolina for a voter suppression bill. But Bruce LaBelle ain't saying nothing. That sorry ass Vernon Jones ain't saying nothing. That thug Andy Stanton not saying anything. Harris Denard not saying jack. Jerron Smith not saying a damn thing. Janelle not saying a damn thing. All these damn black Republicans walking around grifting, saying nothing, what these folks are doing. And all they can say, vote ID, vote ID, voter ID. No, no, no. This goes way beyond voter ID. This is a direct assault on black voters. Yeah, their money is tied up in the Republican Party with regard to jobs, opportunity, and obviously, you know, their resumes. So I'm not expecting Paris or anybody to say anything. I mean, what's really sad in this moment is that, you know, we just had a president who was a white supremacist. We have a Republican Party that is turning into a white grievance club by the minute. And if you, as a black Republican or, or anything else, really can't recognize that, that this is effectively Jim Crow 3.0, you're really, really missing it, to say the least. You know, uh, I find it uh, almost sort of beyond absurd that nobody could recognize the moment that we're in. Uh, the people who are in Georgia running around trying to do voter suppression just saw, of course, the first African-American uh, Vice President uh, of the United States elected. They're scared of that, just as they were scared of Barack Obama. That set them off the first time. They know the country is changing, and this is their reaction. It's also telling, you know, not just that the Republican Party won't alter any po policy to open up a bigger tent, but that, that there's no spirit there of working uh, in concert so that we all in society can get what we all say we want, which is just sort of a better life for everybody and our children, etc. Republican Party's not even talking about that. They're not even talking about anything. Now they're just sort of in this 
obsession with Donald Trump and and watching CPAC and Tiki Gods and Gold Icons and and it just is a party of absolutely nothing. So it, it really actually, at least before with the Tea Party, there was a less government argument coming from the Republican Party. Now there's just nothing. Now there's absolutely nothing there. There's no policy. It's just about what we hate, what we want to stop, what we want to prevent, who we want to stop, who we want to mess up. And then there's nothing there except an idiot named Donald Trump who's going to probably run for president again and waste everybody's time and hopefully lose. Uh, and again, I- I'll put on there, uh, Benjamin, yeah, Gianno Caldwell, you ain't saying a damn thing. Uh, Rob Smith, you ain't saying a damn thing. All these old, all these old trifling-ass black conservatives getting pimped by the party, okay, scared to say something, scared to stand up for black people. And here's the whole deal. If, you're, if, if your policies were worthy of voting for, put them on the table. See, here's my whole deal. There's nothing there. If, if, if I want to swing, I'm going to say my policies, your policies, we can make the best argument. They don't want to do that. They need to cheat. And for every black Republican who is silent, you are a disgrace to black America. Uh, they, they have no problem being the disgrace because those checks are pretty pretty big for them, right? And, and so they have no need to speak on something that's going to mess up their money. That said, the Republican Party is so steeped in this white supremacy that it has been rooted in since the Southern strategy, since Richard Nixon, all the way through Ronald Reagan with the welfare queens. And now we've seen white supremacy run its course all the way up the steps of the Capitol on February on January 6th. And now we see that they have no regard for this country at all. And so it's nothing for them to uh, to poo-poo on our voting rights when they will absolutely overthrow this government in order to maintain power. So the cheating is already gone to the point of treason. And so if they're going to go to the point of treason, Democrat Joe Biden, then you've got to understand the score. They're playing for keeps. They are not going to negotiate with you because they view you as a terrorist. They view everything that we stand for as anathema to them. And they view us as the terrorists, and they view themselves as patriotic. And so for them, this is not cheating. This is the final game for them. They have nothing. They have nothing. And all they have is the ability to stand on this white supremacy. And that says strip everyone who doesn't look like them doesn't serve the white supremacist guys, strip them of their voting rights. That's it. It's as simple as that, folks. Uh, this is about protecting, again, our interests, uh, and we're going to be real clear, not uh, being silent about any of this. Now, let's go to our next story. Black service members account for 16% of coronavirus cases across the Department of Veterans Affairs system, and 22% of the deaths. But they only make up 12% of the overall veteran population in the United States. They also face racial biases in mental and physical health care, there has been a 20% increase in suicide among the military in the last year. Joining us now uh, to talk about this is Jeremy Butler. He's the CEO of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Uh, glad to have you on Roller Martin on the field today. Texas Governor Greg Abbott lift, lift the mask mandate, saying Texas is 100% open. Uh, you've got irresponsible behavior from a lot of Republican leaders, whether it's Governor North Dakota, whether it's what we're seeing in Texas, what we're seeing in Florida as well. Uh, you know, President Biden announced that uh, we're going to have the nation completely vaccinated by uh, May. But the bottom line is this year, uh, African-Americans are suffering in a huge way. What you're laying out is how it's impacted even black veterans. Yeah, absolutely. It has. And it's really, as is often the case, the way it impacts black veterans and veterans in general is the same way it's impacting Americans in general and black Americans. 
Americans in general. Uh, you've got black veterans that are getting hit harder by this uh, virus uh, than other populations. You've got uh, economic effects that are disproportionately affecting black veterans uh, than they are other communities. Uh, so you see very similar things. That said, uh, you know, I'm with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, nonprofit organizations. There are others like us that are fighting back to find ways to fix these things. We've got legislation that's actually in uh, the bill, the economic recovery uh, bill that just got passed by the House and is going to the Senate uh, that's going to provide additional training to veterans who are unemployed because of the pandemic. Or we're working with other veteran organizations to get vaccines to those underrepresented communities that are out there uh, to hopefully get uh, skeptical communities to understand that they need to take this vaccine, and we call it the Veterans Coalition for Vaccination. Uh, and we're rounding up volunteers. We're getting volunteers from the veteran space to go out and help staff communities, uh, community uh, inoculation sites, so that we can make sure that we're getting the vaccine out to the people that need it most. Um, when you look at, uh, obviously, there's a huge difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Uh, and so um, your assessment of how, uh, I'll be the contrast is. Yeah, it's, it's obviously early, but very good news across the board. I mean, one of the best things is that Dennis McDonough, uh, the now confirmed Secretary of the Veteran Affairs uh, Department under President Biden, you know, he reached out to me and other veteran leaders even before uh, his nomination hearing uh, to find out what was important to us to make sure we had his contact information. At that time, it was his cell phone. Now that he's confirmed, we've got his email address uh, at the VA. Uh, we've reached out and we've had meetings with him already to reaffirm our priorities. Uh, we're working with his administration directly with him and his staff, um, and they're already pushing out things that are important to us. So it's early. Um, you know, we had some reservations around Secretary McDonough uh, because he's not a veteran, uh, but I think President Biden uh, transmitted his importance that veterans are to him and his administration because Dennis McDonough is so close to President Biden. I think we're going to be in a really good state. And I'm testifying actually this Thursday along with some other veteran groups before a joint session of uh, the veteran, excuse me, the House and Senate. Uh, VA committees to express our priorities. So I think we're in a much better spot. We got a lot done actually in 2020, uh, even under President Trump and with a divided Congress. Uh, so I think going into uh, what we have now, I think we're going to be able to actually get even more done uh, for the veterans of the country. Um, last question for, for you here. What do you want the future of those who are watching, those who are listening? I think the biggest thing, the, a really big focus that we're going to have for 2021 for the 117th Congress is on burn pits and toxic exposures. We call it the Agent Orange of our generation. Uh, I think most of your viewers are familiar with Agent Orange and those that served in Vietnam, uh, how the chemicals affected them. Uh, burn pits are our generation. It's the post-9-11 generation's Agent Orange. Uh, it's definitely linked to exposures that our servicemen and women uh, took when they were downrange. Um, and it's one example of the way in which the VA is not taking care of our veterans. So uh, if you go to IAVA.org, you can learn a lot more about burn pits and toxic exposures, uh, but it's going to be a priority for us this year. But to really get that legislation passed to make sure that our veterans get the health care and benefits that they need, uh, we need we need civilians to reach out to their members of Congress and say that this is important. So please go to IAVA.org, uh, check out the burn pits page, learn about the toxic exposures, and help us get that legislation passed this year. All right, thank you, everybody. Wish for the future the best of luck. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Folks, going to go to break. We come back. Christopher Ray, head of the FBI, talks white supremacy. 
special terrorism before Congress. Also, people talk about ad calling. The organization that's designed to represent diversity in advertising, they're under criticism for hiring a non-black firm to handle work for them. I'm going to explain that as well. I'm going to go I believe that it's movement time again. In America today, the economy is not working for working people. The poor and the needy are being abused. You are the victims of power. And this is the abuse of economic power. I'm 23 years old. I work three jobs. I work seven days a week. No days off. They're paying people pennies on the dollar compared to what they profit. And it is time for this to end. Essential workers have been showing up to work, feeding us, caring for us, delivering goods to us throughout this entire pandemic. And they've been doing it on a measly $7.25 minimum wage. The highest check I ever got was literally $291. I can't take it no more. You know, the fight for 15 is a lot more than about $15 an hour. This is about a fight for your dignity. We have got to recognize that working people deserve livable wages. And it's long past time for this nation to go to 15 so that moms and dads don't have to choose between asthma inhalers and rent. I'm halfway homeless. The main reason that people end up in their cars is because income does not match housing costs. I could just only work one job and I can have more time with them. It's time for the owners of Walmart, McDonald's, Dollar General, and other large corporations to get off welfare and pay their workers a living wage. And if you really want to tackle racial equity, you have to raise the minimum wage. We're not just fighting for our families, we're fighting for yours too. We need this. I'm going to fight for it until we get it. I'm not going to give up. We just need all of us to sit up as one nation and just fight together. Families are relying on these salaries, and they must be paid at a minimum $15 an hour. $15 a minimum, anyone should be making this to be able to stay out of poverty. I can't take it no more. I'm doing this for not only me, but for everybody. We need 15 right now. Everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, unfiltered. Yeah, the FBI, Christopher Ray testified in before Congress today where he dispelled accusations of fake Trump protesters' involvement in the Capitol riot on January 6th. Ray also reaffirmed that the Bureau has been working day and night to catch those involved in the Capitol siege and has found no evidence thus far of Antifa involvement. And yeah, the FBI said domestic terrorism has been metastasizing for a long time and it is not going away soon which we'll talk about white supremacy white domestic violence some of testimony that attack that siege was criminal behavior plain and simple and it's behavior that we the fbi view as domestic terrorism it's got no place in our democracy and tolerating it would make a mockery of our nation's rule of law the rule of law, of course, is our country's bedrock, and it's our guiding principle at the FBI. 
That's why the FBI has been working day and night across the country to track down those responsible for the events of January 6th and to hold them accountable. We're chasing down leads. We're reviewing evidence, combing through digital media to identify, investigate, and arrest anyone who broke the law that day. And our greatest partner in this investigation has been the American people themselves, your constituents. Citizens from around the country have sent us more than 270,000 digital media tips. Some have even taken the painful step of turning in their friends or their family members. But with their help, we've identified hundreds of suspects and opened hundreds of investigations in all but one of our 56 field offices. And of those identified, we've arrested already more than 270 individuals to date, over 300 when you include the ones of our partners, with more subjects being identified and charged just about every single day. The FBI is committed to seeing this through, no matter how many people it takes or how long or the resources we need to get it done. Because as citizens, in a sense, we're all victims of the January 6th assault and the American people deserve nothing less. Unfortunately, as you noted, Mr. Chairman, January 6th was not an isolated event. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. At the FBI, we've been sounding the alarm on it for a number of years now. I've been sounding the alarm about domestic terrorism since, I think, just about my first month on the job when I first started appearing up on the Hill, and I've spoken about it in maybe a dozen different congressional hearings. So in your investigation so far, do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly. Well, it must be uh, pretty stupid to have folks like Josh Hawley and others of ours sit up there and just throw out nonsense and have the FBI director sitting there like he's playing ping pong. And <coughs> Smacking all that BS away. Yeah, I, I actually think that the very fact that Chris Ray even addressed that ridiculous uh, narrative with regard to it being Antifa and fake Trump supporters and all this nonsense was, was slightly ridiculous. I mean, I guess you do have to address it because they put it out there. But, you know, a big cornerstone of Republican messaging, of course, right now is just straight up lying. And when they straight up lie, they play the percentages. They, they get on network TV and they just lie and figure that, you know, we'll get a half, half the people believing us and this is how we're going to do it. So when you get into the conversation at a, at, a, at a hearing like this, this type of idiot narrative where there was absolutely no proof of any of that, uh, and you got the FBI director sitting there having to address it, uh, and another senator, Senator Coons, asking about it. So you had like a good chunk of conversation about something that was completely and utterly false, that there was zero evidence for. And that's, you know, that's the world today that the Republican Party has brought us into. They want us into this tailspin of bullshit. That's what they're, that's what they're about. It's just talking about junk and nonsense that doesn't exist because they don't want to talk about the real world that's changing and the real demographics that are changing and the reality around them. They cannot escape it. It is not going away. The country is changing. Demographics of the country is changing, and instead of embracing that on some level, instead of facing that new reality, they've decided to lie to themselves. The Republican Party has decided that is what.
what they're going to do is lie to themselves. And what we end up with is a riot at the Capitol, an attack on the Capitol, and the craziness that we saw January 6th. I mean, you can't make it up. At some point also, too, we've got to get these social media companies because social media is driving these lies completely unregulated. And we are in a situation now where uh, basically uh, nobody's really confronting them or doing anything about it. They've got good lobbyists. That's one of the problems. And a few of those people ended up in the White House on staff, unfortunately. And but at some point, we have to confront the fact that these lies are being are propelling people to take action that is violent and dangerous to this country. But but really, it is the Republican Party, it is Donald Trump, it is the fact that they cannot face reality. Uh, ben, uh, Raypoint Lawrence talked about how the lies are spread through disinformation, especially on Facebook, and how they're not stopping. No, when you think about the algorithms that Facebook uses, it it it, it rewards the most extreme behavior possible. Not just Facebook, YouTube, all of these outlets, they reward the most extreme behavior. And if the FBI really wants to find the people who are culpable for this, they should check some of these YouTube channels, some of these some of these streams that get 20, 30,000 people watching them, while most of us on the left or the center on are getting a handful. But that's because the algorithms push them further and further into this right-wing conspiracy theories and all the things that drove what happened on January 6th. And so it is a problem, but it's compounded by the fact that technology is not on our side in this instance, not because it can't be on our side, but because people like Mark Zuckerberg have clearly found it more rewarding to make it beneficial for people like Alex Jones, as one of the recent reports indicated, than it is to let create a level playing field. Um, Mustafa, uh, I do want to ask you about this here, uh, this breaking news just coming in. Uh, the White House, uh, they have uh, pulled uh, Mira Tandon. Uh, from uh, being named uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, that just come in because opposition coming from both parties. Uh, of course, uh, you have a lot of uh, South Asian uh, folks not happy as well. The Asian American community felt uh, that this is a, a huge blow. What did you make of this decision from the White House uh, to pull her after Manchin announced he was not voting for her because they're upset because her name is Right. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know, comparing Myrda and some of the things that she said on social media to, to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of tweets and videos from, you know, uh, many of the Republicans, you know, everyone from, of course, former Donald Trump um, to, you know, a number of the others. And, uh, you know, you got to stand for something and, and you've got to let folks know that they're willing to go through, you know, these these actions when you're going to have to go in front of a Senate confirmation or just to be going through the media that that you're going to ride with me and if you're not going to ride with me then tell me that from the beginning so that I can make a, a calculated decision if I want to put myself out there or not so I mean I know they did the vote count you know and then they reached out to senators and everybody to say you know you know can we get your vote and that type of thing but but the question is are you going to put something behind it or are you going to push are you going to utilize all the various tools you have to get this person whom you said was someone that you had trust in and was going to bring value to your administration? you got to stand with folks. And, I, and I've seen this happen, you know, a few times. You know, we, we saw it, and I don't have to call out some of the names of other individuals who, 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 who stood up uh, and, and gave their federal service, uh, and then an administration didn't stand behind them. So I, I don't have no 
you know, our, our Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters have every right to be disappointed. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Um, look, bottom line is, Dan, uh, you have sound like a lot, a lot of Bernie supporters are not happy with a lot of the tweets that she, what she had to say about them. But let's just be real. If you have been whining about tweets, you have Republicans who say, oh, no, yeah, I never read any Donald Trump's tweets. Uh, come on. Really? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, so... The, the tweet excuse that, that those are poor excuses, um, and I agree. If if the Trump uh, or if the Biden administration uh, wasn't going to go the distance with her, then they probably should have checked that out beforehand. But there are plenty of other reasons. Uh, Joe Manchin's excuse wasn't even warranted. It wasn't. There was nothing meritorious about what he was saying. But there were other actual reasons that progressives opposed her, uh, and none of, none of them included her tweets. Uh, so I, that was a weak excuse. But there were other reasons to not support uh, Mayor Tandon. Um, here's a story I, I do want to talk about. I, I came across uh, this post uh, on LinkedIn that I found to be quite interesting. Uh, and it, it, it came from uh, Walter Jr. He, he works, in, uh, works in advertising, uh, the advertising industry. And uh, th this was posted on LinkedIn. He's the executive creative director. Uh, and, and, and this was quite interesting. I want to read it. He said, the more I continue to see posts on Droga 5, winning the ad color conference and awards business, the more confused and saddened I am about the whole thing. Ad color is supposed to be uplifting our voices in advertising, and yet their decision to pick this agency doesn't seem in line with their messaging. Obviously, I don't know anything about what happened behind the scenes or what Droga 5 is doing to improve their DE&I efforts. You can't deny their work is amazing. However, it truly hurts to see an organization like this not give back and pick a POC-run agency or even an agency predominantly run by POCs, more specifically black and brown people. No one owes me anything. But I'd love to invite Tiffany R. Warren to an Instagram Live to discuss this topic, just like I did with Gary V. I just need to know that as a black man in this industry, ad color has my back. And I know that many of you who read that news thought the same thing. What do you think, Tiffany? No drama, no bullshit. Just an open and candid conversation between two black executives where we could discuss the thinking behind such an important decision. And we reached out to Tiffany Warren, who is the founder of Ad Color, to talk about this as well. And those of you who watch this show, you have heard me talk about black economic social justice. You've heard me talk about why it's important for us to support black businesses. And one of the things that we've talked about on this show is the lack of dollars and in investment in black media companies. What's happening in the advertising industry where black people are being frozen out. We've talked about the same thing happening on the federal government level. One percent of media dollars going to black media companies. And, and the thing that just really just, just jumps out at me, and it, it does rub me wrong, if you will, Benjamin. Uh, and, and I would love to again to hear the stuff behind it is that one of the biggest complaints that I get from a lot of black companies is that black organizations, black business companies, don't hire black PR firms, black ad agencies, uh, black firms who can do the work. I, I was texting a friend of mine today in a discussion with a black director who said, the reason his team is nearly all white because he wanted other white folks to think, to know that we're not doing just black stuff. And so the point that 
Walter is making here is, how can you be an organization that supposedly is about supporting black and other minority businesses, but then you don't throw some business to a black and other minority business? I think Walter's argument certainly has merit. Absolutely, because, you know, blackness is an aesthetic now, right? It's a brand, and you see a lot of people put a black face or a black brand on top of it, but behind the scenes, it's nothing but our white brothers and sisters. And it's because of this, this fallacious belief that whiteness is somehow more professional. And it's been my experience that you're never going to find people who work harder or more qualified because we've been taught since we were children that you have to be 10 times better to get half as much. And Roland, you know as much as I know in this industry, especially in independent media, our work is twice as good, five times as good, 10 times as good. And yet we don't get a fraction of what is available to us. And quite frankly, that's some of the reason in this country we have some of the problems that we have. It's because we keep pouring money into these failing white mediocre experiments and not money into these black excellence experiments. See, uh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this, Mustafa. I, I was talking with um, a black um, advertising executive who said enough of these organizations, enough of these entities handing out diversity awards because, frankly, companies that are not diverse. And so what happens is the same companies then use the award as a, as, as, as a Kevlar, as, 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 oh, as protection to saying, see, we got awarded by so-and-so for diversity. Well, when you look at their numbers, what? You might have one. I was on a call with one media company. They talked about how they increased their diversity hiring by 50%. I said, well, no, 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 no. I don't do percentages. How many direct reports did you have? The person said, I got 29. How many black direct reports did you have? One. I said, so you hired one more? I said, so you got now two out of 29 but you want to play that 50% stuff with me. See, that's the game we're playing here. The argument that I'm making is, I need, look, Henry, you can take it. And, and I just said this, Mustafa. This desk built by a black set designer, these lights installed by a black lighting director, we use black caterers, we use black photographers, we employ black people. If we don't employ our own, who the hell will? That's the point Walter's saying. He's exactly right. You know, we know there has been a disinvestment in our communities, in our businesses. So if we are not willing to reinvest, then, you know, others aren't going to. And then we have to also stop allowing folks to pimp us and take our dollars. Um, I often say we got to stop. Also, you know, when you pull that curtain back from the wizard, you get to find out what's really going on back there. So, you know, we have some responsibility in this space. We also need to make sure there are scorecards, honest scorecards about, you know, these various entities and, and what do they really look like? What does their infrastructure look like? You know, how many folks are actually in positions of power? Who are the folks who actually are yielding and, and wielding the dollars, if you will? And then if we can still continue to shoot our own selves in the foot by not holding people accountable, by taking our dollars away from the folks who don't truly care about our communities and who are not investing in us, then then that's on us. But we've got a lot of these different pieces we've got to pull together. Absolutely. And see, and see here's the deal, Lauren. 
I, 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 I would love to. We reached out to Tiffany Warren. I would love to Tiffany Warren to come on and discuss this. I would love for Tiffany to come on to talk about how ad color is holding the industry accountable. Because I'm be honest with you, I'm sick of all these bullshit DE and opposition. I'm being real honest with you. Because, see, I need to see real change. And I keep saying, don't you don't, you don't get props from me for hiring a black person in a DE and I position. I need to see who else you're hiring. I need to see who's getting contracts. I need to see, are you doing what that brother at Coca-Cola is doing by saving law firms? Unless y'all diversify, you're going to lose our business. That's what I'm talking about. And so we've got to be challenging everybody to see, I ain't interested in you dancing and taking photos with blackness. I'm not interested in you coming to the receptions and the red carpet and the picking up some cute little award. No, I need to see substantive changes. And so all Walter is saying, and I concur, is who you hiring? And if you're not hiring us, what's up? Yeah. Because if, right. if you can't hire us, you can't represent us. Go ahead. All right. It's about the money, obviously, Roland, as you well know. Who gets the money, who gets paid, who gets the highest salary, and who gets to decide who gets to decide who else they can bring in to make those salaries. So it's not a lot of times you'll see a company, they'll hire a few black people to, uh, you know, integrate the photography, but those people really don't make a decision with regard to who else they can hire. So you have to have sort of a, a scale-up inside an organization. You know, media organizations do it all the time. They'll hire some black people, and but those black people really don't control any hiring and any salary structure within the structure. And uh, so it really doesn't mean anything. Uh, so it's it's a it's a um, a never-ending problem in, in a lot of industries. And uh, to me, the way I sort of always judge it is, you know, you're not showing me anything unless you're showing me somebody who makes decisions over hiring and firing and 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 really that's right the salary structure. I mean, if you if you don't have that, there's nothing going on. Here's the deal: I had the people from 600 to be on on here. Effort they're trying to uh, change the advertising industry. Uh, this is what I'm going to put out. I will gladly have Walter, have Tiffany Warren and Ad Color. I will gladly have 600. I'll gladly have anybody else. I will happily host an hour. No, I'll make a two-hour conversation right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered about what is happening in the advertising industry when it comes to who they're hiring, who's in power. And also, what dollars that black media companies are receiving from the annual $150. I'm putting it out there. So, Tiffany, you got the invite. Walter, you got the invite. 600 and beyond, you got the invite. I will, I will lead the conversation. I will have some of the top black people who are advertising to come on this show so we can have a family conversation to answer what is happening. Are we getting that money? that we deserve because we damn sure put money in but we ain't getting it back as owners when we come back we'll celebrate the life and legacy of the great Vernon Jordan right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered you know I've had the privilege of working closely with President Biden to tackle tough issues under intense and often high-pressure situations. And I know firsthand his commitment to defending our nation and his steadfast support of the men and women 
that he now leads as our Commander-in-Chief. There's no aspect of our agenda of the 21st century leadership where the women and men of the Defense Department do not have a role, whether it's helping curb the pandemic here at home and around the world, or addressing the real threats of climate change. President CEO, Mark Morial. Gentlemen, glad to have all of you here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, I, I didn't think we would have all three of you at the same time, so this certainly uh, makes for uh, a, a great conversation. Um, you heard me describe him, John. I'll start with you, not only because you followed Vernon, but also you graduated from my high school, uh, and you also spoke at my high school graduation. So you get first dibs. Uh, I know you're a Kappa. Mark, you're my frat brother. But I got to go with Jack Case High School in Houston first. Uh, John, just share your thoughts about Vernon Jr. Well, thanks, Roland, first of all, for having me and the, all three of us. I think it is very fitting that we speak about Vernon and spend some time talking about Vernon. Uh, I had the privilege of knowing Vernon for almost 50 years. And I can say without fear of contradiction that no one has ever been more suitable to lead the National Urban League movement than Vernon Jordan. He was an outstanding leader, a great administrator, a dynamic orator, and one of the best fundraisers to ever lead a not-for-profit organization. And the National Urban League was, was something mag magical about uh, Vernon. The National Urban League provided Vernon with a pulpit to preach his sermons all around the world. I don't know how many people know this, but before Vernon decided to go into the practice of law, he really considered becoming a minister. And the National Urban League provided Vernon with his church and his congregation to preach his sermons day in and day out on the injustices that exist in this country. It provided him with an army through his local Urban League affiliates to fight the battles of freedom, justice, and equality for all people. It enabled him to litigate and advocate the rights of and opportunities of black people and other people in need without going into a courtroom. And he was able to provide counsel to elected officials at all levels without having ever run or held a public office. He was that individual that comes along in a lifetime whose impact on society can only be measured by the distances we have come, regardless of the obstacles we have confronted. Price. How you doing? Yes, sir. Your thoughts. Share your your reflections on Vernon Jordan. Vernon was a force of nature. Um, transcendent leaders like that come along very rarely. Uh, they may go to undergraduate school or law school, but you can't teach the kind of leadership that he had. You can't teach the kind of charisma that he had, <clears throat> the gravitas that he had, um, the networks that he built. He was extraordinary. Um, he uh, came of age professionally in the civil rights movement, of course, and so he was very much a player in uh, 
voting rights and the battles for uh, equal opportunity in housing and uh, access to public accommodations. And then he brought all of those skills and connections into the Urban League movement. And uh, I would say, just as an urban leader, that it was always, and I'm sure the others can attest, Vernon often said that leading the National Urban League was the greatest job he ever had, ever had in his life. And uh, given all the other things he accomplished, that, that was quite a testament to the league and to his impact on the league. But I think also the impact that he had on corporate America and on the business world, because when he opened those doors, those doors swung open, not just for him, but for everybody who followed in his wake. And so his impact in the corporate world, his mentorship of, uh, of very senior executives and future CEOs had a tremendous ripple effect on the hiring practices, the contracting practices of those companies. So I think the idea that he was the Rosa Parks of Wall Street was quite apt. And to Jake's point about Vernon having considered being a preacher, it's interesting if you look at many of his speeches, he frequently cited scripture. And his favorite models were a number of the great uh, preachers uh, in, in our country. So uh, he truly was one of a kind, and it was a treat to know him, to count him as a mentor and a friend. And I'd say until his passing yesterday, one of the extraordinary things about the Urban League movement of which he was a part is the league is 110 or 111 years old. There have only been four presidents, eight, excuse me, eight presidents and CEOs in the history of the Urban League. And until his passing, four of us were still standing. And he certainly was the mentor to all of us. Mark Morial. Uh, Roland, uh, thank you for having all three of us, especially thanks uh, for reaching out. Uh, so we man is uh, that Vernon, Vernon Jordan spanned, if you will, a wide swath of American life. And he brought civil rights, he brought racial justice uh, from his early days as a courtroom lawyer to his days as an NAACP field leader to the chief executive of the UNCF the National Urban League, uh, and then to the boardrooms of America. And I might add, uh, uh, Hugh mentioned his mentorship and sponsorship of senior executives. I would point out that Ken Chenault and Ursula Burns, both two distinguished uh, former CEOs uh, of American Express and Xerox, respectively, had a common denominator, and that was a mentorship of board member on the board of Xerox, and on the board of American Express, Vernon Dorn. So he exercised the influence of civil rights in the streets and in the suites, in the boardrooms and in the halls of Congress. Uh, for the National Urban League, I think following Whitney Young in 1971, after his tragic death, was a difficult thing for Vernon Jordan to do. Whitney Young was a giant, an ally of Dr. King, one of the big six civil rights leaders, a transformative leader in the history of the National Urban League. Uh, but Vernon did it, and Vernon did it well, and uh, took uh, the National Urban League to a new level, uh, building our platform in workforce development and job training, creating the State of Black America report, uh, solidifying what Whitney started in terms of relationships uh, with the corporate titans of America while maintaining the faith and the credibility of, uh, of a civil rights leader. 
so he, uh, uh, for me, I would just add, I met him when I was 16 years old. Uh, I was in awe of him, as were several of my friends when we met him. He was smooth. He was cool. He was regal. He was at once uh, erudite and down to earth, uh, a special kind of person. And he had this incredible sense of humor, this ability to tell stories, uh, a man of tremendous presence and, uh, and, and contribution and transformative leadership. So we will miss him, uh, but his life and his legacy, in the spiritual sense, his life will continue, his legacy indeed will continue. I, I made the point uh, about uh, Vernon being regal. Uh, he had the voice, he was tall, he was good looking, he was smooth dressing. Um, uh, when he walked into the room, John, uh, as I said, you knew Vernon Jordan had walked into the room. His aura, Absolutely. his aura came into the room before he did. Absolutely. You, you know, you know, I can, I can say that having been, having been the one who, who, who worked for Vernon, uh, Vernon hired me as his first executive vice president and chief operating officer. Uh, and frankly, I never expected to become president of the National Urban League. Vernon Jordan wanted me to become president of the National Urban League, and that's why and how I became president of the National Urban League. And it is back because of Vernon that I ended up serving on, during my career, seven corporate boards. Because Vernon had served on corporate boards, he sort of set, set the table that CEOs of Urban League of national of the National Urban League brought the qualification to occupy that space in corporate America, and so I'm a beneficiary of Vernon having opened those doors that corporations looked at me in the context that if Vernon Jordan was good for corporate America, John Jacob too must be good for corporate America, and thusly. I ended up on, before my career ended, some seven corporate boards. And it is because I served on those corporate boards that I was discovered by Anheuser-Busch not only to serve on their board, but to come inside and become one of two executive vice presidents on their management team, all because of Vernon Jordan and the stature he had created in corporate America. Hugh, um, the reason I keep talking about present is because it could be a bit intimidating sitting across the table from Vernon Jordan. You, you had to keep your wits about you because you knew all eyes were on him. Uh, uh, but he was a very generous person, very generous of spirit, so he did not attempt to intimidate anyone you just were in awe and I also took mental notes on I went to school on how Vernon performed the role of being a leader on how he communicated on how he uh, conveyed his messages on how he presented himself um, so there was so much to learn in just watching him in action I would also say that one of the 
things we've touched upon lightly, but it's, it's hugely important. No African-American has ever had relationships with presidents of the United States like he did. Never before and not since. And so he had a trusted relationship with uh, Bill Clinton, obviously with Hillary Clinton, who didn't become president with the Obamas. And it wasn't just that they were golfing buddies. He was their most intimate and closest advisor. He kept his counsel. He did not gossip about anything. He provided advice. He was a sounding board. And uh, as a sign of that, I believe the Clintons came to the George's house every year for Christmas dinner. It doesn't get any closer than that. Mark, um, I'm trying to remember how this conversation came about. I have no idea. It might have been when President Obama spoke at the 100th anniversary of the NAACP. Um, but I was in New York, and for, it's weird. We're, we're having drinks. I, don't even ask me. Don't even ask me. We're having drinks, uh, or maybe it was before the election, and it's Vernon Jordan, Valerie Jarrett, Spike Lee, and uh, there's, uh, there's a man and a woman, both white, in this bar, and they, one of them decides to just to come up to us and to ask us about this Obama fellow. <laughs> now, mind you, we're all enjoying each other's company, and Vernon goes, mm-mm. We're not about to do this right now. We're not about to do this. And so the guy's sitting here, you know, and, and Vernon literally, like, look, we are having a conversation. We're not about to sit here and try to sell you on a black guy run for president. And so the guy sort of goes away, and the white woman who was with, with him, she comes back, and she says, well, you know, he was just inquiring, but you know, he's one of the most powerful individuals on uh, in finance on Wall Street. And Vernon goes, I don't know who he is, which tells you he's not one of the most powerful people on Wall Street. Mark, I just sat down and cracked the hell up laughing because she was, I mean, she turned red and she just had to scurry on off and he just started laughing when she walked away. Uh, he had a, a biting wit, a great sense of humor, and uh, the ability to tell it like it is and be extremely blunt. Uh, and uh, that presence uh, and that wisdom and, and is why he was such a trusted advisor, such a trusted advisor to presidents and CEOs. And But, but you know, uh, Roland, perhaps the most important part of Vernon Jordan and his legacy is how he spent time with young people, young politicians, young executives, young professionals, always gave back, always paid it forward. That is critically important. Um, there were a lot of people today, this is the final uh, question for all three of you. There were a lot of people today who were saying, man, we, we, we're losing our giants. Uh, but the reality is... Death is a part of life. But the key is, is what did you do with the time that you had? And when you look at his civil rights work, his law work, when you look at him being an author, when you look at the book Vernon Can Read uh, that, that he put out as well, when you talk about uh, the, the, uh, the impact and the advice 
sitting with power, um, wielding power. Um, he also was an unapologetic black man. Don't let the expensive suit, ties, and cufflinks and time spent on Martha's Vineyard fool you. John, he was an unapologetic black man. And because of that, uh, there are people in this country today who may not even know his name, don't even know what he looks like, but their life is better and their children's life are better, lives are better because of what Vernon Jordan did in this country for them and their children. Vernon Jordan's legacy will never die because of the good work that he did to make America more sensitive to the needs and concerns of black folks. And Vernon Jordan's work that made their lives better because of the work he was doing on their behalf. What people need to understand is that when Vernon Jordan was in a boardroom, he was not there for Vernon Jordan. He was there for them. He was representing them. He was a voice for them. He was an advocate for them. And they are having a better life today because of that. And I'll add just one other factor. One of the characteristics that Vernon had that was very unique is that Vernon never lost contact with anyone he ever met. The reason he and Bill Clinton were such great friends is that when Bill Clinton ran for governor the second time and lost, Vernon George still called him and had lunch with him, had breakfast with him, had dinner with him, even though he was a loser in that election. And Bill Clinton has never forgotten when he was down Vernon Jordan was there to lift him up. Steve Price. I would just underscore everything that Jake said and say, for me, Vernon was a one-man wrecking crew when it came to shattering glass ceilings. And a lot of people, Jake say, sort of misinterpret that role and think that it's all for the person who is shattering the ceilings. But it opens pathways and opportunities for folks who see, oh, this person can do it, that black, black person can do it, let's bring in others into the pipeline all the way throughout the organization. Uh, so he, he, he was an extraordinary, extraordinary leader, and I hope that young people go to school on him. I hope they study him, not just read his book, Vernon Can Read, but read other accounts of his strategy, of his impact, of how he became who he is, because there's so much to learn about the role that he played, which doesn't mean that it has to be played exactly the same way now, but we need the knowledge and understanding of how power is aggregated over time and how opportunities open up as a result of the application of pressure. Uh, he was the, the ultimate race man as far as I was concerned. Mark Morial, you're the uh, youngest uh, among uh, this crew. You get the last word. There's no, nothing more that needs to be said because I think we have said what needs to be said. All I would underscore is Vernon Jordan's legacy lives with us. And as we watched in a short period of time, John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, uh, 
legacy of his work bring comfort to Ann, Vicky, and his family. Folks, uh, it is indeed uh, a, re a remarkable career uh, of someone uh, who understood power, how power operated in this country. Uh, I always tell people all the time, when you go to the White House uh, and go to those lawns, there's power, you have the White House, and then there's money, Department of Treasury. Those two buildings actually share a lawn uh, in uh, our uh, nation's capital. Uh, and the reality is uh, that's what you see. You see that. And he understood how that power worked. He understood the bridge uh, between those two, understood how to bring people together uh, to, to uh, deal with power, uh, to share power, uh, to discuss uh, power. That's what uh, he did. Here's some of a conversation with Vernon Deere that took place at the Clinton Presidential Library. As a junior in high school, I thought that I was going to Howard University. I applied and got accepted. Only my teachers wanted me to go to Morehouse, which was across the street from the housing project where I lived. And there used to be an organization here in New York called the National Service and Scholarship Fund for Negro Students, NESFINES. And in my senior year, in October, the, a principal from California representing NESFINES came to meet with the, the, the uh, The smart students, that was the name for NAM. And he talked about Nesfinesse, and it was based on a project at Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C., where they took the best students and sent them to Ivy League school. So I got very interested in it. And I applied to Yale, I applied to Dartmouth, I applied to Lafayette, I applied to DuPont. President of the Atlanta Dartmouth Alumni Association called me up and summoned me to his office. And I put on my little suit and shined my shoes and went downtown. And he said to me that 10 boys in Atlanta had applied to Dartmouth, and I was the only color. And, but I had the best academic record. And he said, the Atlanta Dartmouth Alumni Association is going to support your application. And we're going to do it because we want you to go to Dartmouth and get a good education and come back to Atlanta and be a Booker T. Washington for your people. And I said, sir, that won't work. He said, well, I want it work. I said, I'm a W.B. Du Bois man. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us on the phone, he spent 17 years as the CEO of American Express, the third African-American ever to lead a Fortune 500 company. Uh, Ken Chenault, welcome to Rollerball and Unfiltered. Great to be with you. Um, Ken, just share your initial thoughts about Vernon Jordan, who he was, what he represented. Did we, uh, did we lose Ken? Roller. There we go. We got you. There we go. 
Uh, I think we're having some uh, guys. What's going on? Do we have his audio? Okay. All right. Let me know um, if we uh, we have Ken Chenault back um, with this. Uh, I know we have him by the phone. Uh, okay. Do we have Ken now with the audio? Ken, go ahead. Ken, can you hear me? I can't hear Ken. Uh, folks, let's, let's, let's do this here. Uh, let's pull him on FaceTime audio, please. No video. Let's put him on. Uh, that's John's video. Let's put him on FaceTime. Can you hear me FaceTime. now? Now we can hear you, Ken. Go ahead. Good. Good. All right. So, Roland, Vernon was a giant. I actually call him the first crossover artist because he was obviously a giant in the civil rights movement. But Vernon also recognized the importance of speaking up at our community. Hello? All right, go ahead, Ken. Jeanette, we got you. Yes. So what I was saying, Roland, is Vernon recognized the importance of economic power for African Americans, and he was able to make a virtually seamless transition from the civil rights movement to the business world. And what was important is he was still very focused on racial justice. And I will tell you that there is business who was not touched by the You're absolutely right, uh, Ken, about folks, um, um, uh, you know, them not not being touched by him. And, and the thing is, he understood how to use that power to expand the opportunities for others because he realized the people who were creating wealth by joining these boards of directors, the impacts they had on choosing CEOs and choosing senior, senior leaders, and realized that, look, you could not be fighting for civil rights if you did not also fight for economic justice. Absolutely, Roland. Well, that was what was important was a lot of people had the vision, but the issue is can they execute? And Vernon was able to execute on that vision. And one of the things he would say to me consistently is he would say, Ken, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And we have to live a life. We have to give back. We have to bring people up so that other people can stand on our shoulders. And that's really the way Vernon lived his life, is he was a champion for economic power, for racial justice, for black America. Share with our audience the, what it was like, first of all, going to him, relying on that advice and counsel, being able to call him uh, and bounce things off of or share things and, and get sure, his sure. perspective on moves you could potentially would make as a CEO of American Express. So one of the examples I would give, and this is the genius of Vernon because he could reached down early. When I was in my early 30s, evidently my name came up 
at a board meeting. And uh, and the reference was made that Dan is African-American. We think he has very high potential. Some board members would have just said, all right, that's great. What Vernon did was he called me. And he said, remember, distinctly, he called and said, Ken, this is Vernon Jordan. He said, I want to take you to breakfast. And I went over, Vernon liked to go to a hotel in New York called the Regency Hotel. And uh, we had breakfast there. Obviously, everybody knew him. Everybody was going over to the table. And the breakfast was at 8 o'clock. And I got there at 8. Vernon was there, 8 o'clock sharp. And we finished breakfast at 12.30. And what Vernon did was simply amazing is he talked to me about his life, but also the lives of others in the civil rights movement. And he said to me, these are the people who paved the way for you. You have a responsibility. You have an obligation. The other thing, as you know, with Roland, Roland is that Vernon was a great storyteller. And um, the vivid stories he told me about his personal struggles, what he did in the civil rights movement, the jokes, I just knew I was in the presence of, of a giant. And then what I was able to do through the years is when I had a challenging decision to make, needed some advice on my career, I went to Vernon, and what's important about Vernon is he was with you all the way. And I took Vernon's advice 95% of the time, but not 100%. And what was important is he respected that. And... He was an incredibly loyal friend, and he just had incredible judgment. He was very wise, and what I really appreciated, and I'll just give you one other example, is when I was named CEO, and we had our board meeting, and everyone was seated at a round table. And Vernon passed a note, folded it up with the board members. And I opened the note, and he said, when he started calling me, Mr. Chairman, if I was in church, I would say hallelujah. But I think I would scare these white folks if I said it in the boardroom. <laughs> hallelujah. And, and that's Vernon. That, I think, is a perfect way uh, to end the interview. Question out, uh, we have lost the giant, uh, but uh, we have uh, his wonderful work, and there's a whole lineage of people who he has put in position to who can now uh, pay it forward as a result of his work, uh, not only in civil rights and law, but also in business. You're absolutely right, Roland. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about a great man. Well, Ken, this is why I created this platform, this digital show, 
because I watched the other networks. Uh, I said, no, we're going to dedicate a whole hour because people need to know who this man was and what he meant. And we appreciate you joining us for this uh, salute. Much. Thank Take you, care. Thank you very much. Folks, we told you that prior to joining the National Urban League, prior to being on Wall Street, before he even knew President Bill Clinton, before he advised any president, uh, Vernon Jordan was a civil rights lawyer. The role that he played in assisting our next guest, another student, to become the first black students to walk into the campus of the University of Georgia, we welcome Charlene Hunter-Galt, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Charlene, always good to see you. Thank you, Roland. It's great to be with you. And my daughter is very excited about me being on your program. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm always uh, happy to hear that. Uh, I, I've known you for years at NABJ. Uh, you are one of our pioneers. And it's all, always great to see you and hug you. I think it was last at Gwen Eiffel's um, postage uh, celebration, I think. Gwen Eiffel, you see her yes, right there? I see her. I see her over your right shoulder. Um, Folks, to take folks, first of all, before I get to University of Georgia, just your initial uh, thoughts when you got word uh, that Vernon Jordan passed away. Well, you know, I was able, thank God, to visit him when he was in the rehab hospital in Washington, D.C. I came up for some other things, including Gwen, Gwen Stamp, and uh, we had a nice meeting. And so I was very happy that I had an opportunity to see him in person. And then subsequently, I had conversations with him on the phone. And Vicki, his daughter, would organize that. Well, and we, and we would talk about just golf. That's his favorite thing. And the beach on the vineyard, because he always entertained so many of us uh, when they were there for the month of August, um, he and Ann on the vineyard. And so we would just, you know, chit chat. And, and I felt very good about that. And this morning, I got a call from Reverend Otis Moss Jr., a great civil rights uh, minister and, and, and just a wonderful man. And he said, uh, I recognized his voice, and I said, oh, wait a minute, my other phone, he called me on my mobile, and my home phone was ringing. I said, hold on just a minute. And I picked it up, and it was Vicky. And very quickly, my mind said, something is up, because Reverend Moss wouldn't be calling me this time of morning, and Vicky wouldn't be calling me. And just out of my mouth, I said to Vicky, Vicky, are you calling me with what I think you might be calling me with? And she sniffed and she said, yes. And I put the phone on, on my mobile on speaker and so that Reverend Moss could hear me talking to Vicki, who told me how he had, and you know, when I lived in South Africa, I learned never to say that's when someone goes where he went there's a certain word they don't use. They use transition. Right. And I said, has he transitioned? She said, yes. And so as I, as I talked to her, I had Reverend Moss on the other line. 
because I knew that as much as I had a feeling this was coming sooner, maybe rather than later, I don't think I was quite ready for it. So I chatted with Vicki a few more minutes and I said, can I call any of the papers that I have contact? She said, no, we got that sorted. And I said, well, just let me know what I can do, if anything, in the next few days or whenever. And, you know, just stay in touch. She said, okay. And then I transitioned to uh, Reverend Moss where I just wept and wept. And he listened very carefully because he, well, not so much carefully, but patiently, I guess I should say. And uh, that helped me through the hardest part. Um, because what I know about Vernon, uh, he, it is about transitioning. And, and that's how I have managed to make it through this very challenging day of remembering him. I just remembered him on the PBS News Hour with Ursula Burns, who was very close to him. And I talked about one of the things I knew about Vernon that we shared. You know, we were both AMEs. I'm a PK preacher's kid, as Gwen Eiffel was. And, and we are people of faith. Vernon was a person of faith. And so my thinking about his transitioning um, keeps me, keeps my sorrow in check because despite his earthly loss, I have heard him preach enough from so many pulpits on various occasions about the great camp meeting in the promised land that I know that's where he is now. He's in He's in the great camp meeting in the promised land, and he is yucking it up with the other ancestors, my mother, uh, just so many others, Mandela, people that he knew over the years and probably helped one way or another. So as sad as I am, that faith, that I shared with him helps me process his homegoing. You, you, you talked about um, using the word transition. Uh, one of the things that we say in the case of someone uh, at his age, uh, they've now gone from an elder to an ancestor. Elder to an ancestor, absolutely. The thing, I, I was say, I said this to a few price, and I had Hugh Price, John Jacob, and Mark Morrell on all together. Oh, great. And it was great to have all three of his successors on. And I, and it was, the thing about, this was a regal man. I, 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 I cannot just forget Charlene. Here in D.C., and I was standing in front of the Grand Hyatt, and he, he, he I had walked out and he was coming over, on, uh, waiting on the valet, and I said, if you have never met an African king, <laughs> I mean, cause I, I, I watched the, uh, the miniseries uh, Shaka Zulu, uh, and Vernon Jordan, again, tall, good-looking, that voice, 
he he walked and I'm telling all you can think there goes an African king. Absolutely. You know, the thing about Vernon, he was what, what would you say, 6'4", 6'3", 6'4", and one of the memories I have is of when he walked me into that screaming mob of racists in 19, January 9th, 1961, was celebrating the 60th anniversary of that moment, and I remember that we stopped at the registration building to do the first things at Hamilton Homes, my, my late cousin, who's also an ancestor, and I'm sure they're together now, remember, reminiscing, because he left us far too soon. But at any rate, uh, we stopped at the, at the registration building, and we filled out the papers. And my mom, who was about 5'4", and very strong, very strong, very brave. So we left that building, which, by the way, now bears the Holmes Hunter name, thank goodness that the university has remembered us in that way for other generations. And <clears throat> we're walking to the journalism uh, college where I had to complete my registration. And Vernon and I were walking fast, fast, fast to get past these screaming kids. And my mother, again, who, as I said, is so much shorter than us, called out, Hey, you two, I'm not as tall as you two. Could you please slow down so I can catch up with you? And it wasn't because she was afraid. She just wanted to be with us, you know? And so we said, oh, right, right, right. But Vernon was so determined that that's where his focus was, getting from that building across the campus. And, of course, halfway through that process, the judge who had ordered us in, and I've never understood this because he made a pie and, um, an amazing historic decision admitting us um, at a time when no Southern university had been desegregated. Uh, Meredith came a few months later. But uh, Judge Boodle had ordered us in. And for some reason, the university was still fighting the case. So they managed on some grounds to get a stay of the desegregation order. And we're right in the middle of, of, of signing up in the journalism. So we had, fortunately, there was a black family uh, that had said they'd be available if we needed them. And so we went over to this black family while Constance Baker Motley and Donald Hollowell went to, went to court in Atlanta to try to get Judge Boodle's stay order overturned. So we're sitting there, and Vernon's sitting there, and all of a sudden, Vernon gets a telephone call. I guess this must have been maybe an hour or so later. I had actually gone to sleep because I was exhausted. And he gets off the phone, and he says, we can continue. The judge has ordered the stay uh, abolished, uh, whatever term, he, legal term he used. And what was fascinating about that was that, A, we were able to continue registering that day, but the headline in the newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution, the next day, because the judge who overturned Judge Boodle's stay was named Tuttle. And so the headline was Tuttle Boots 
boodle. And that's how I think Judge Tuttle went down in history as the judge who booted boodle. And Vernon, of course, took us back uh, to the journal, took me back to the journalism school, and, and I was able to continue registering. But, you know, he was just, he was just there for me and for Hamp. And as I've listened to people, I didn't hear the earlier part of your show, but I heard Ursula Burns a little while ago on the news hour. And she talked about how he was there for you in every iteration. I mean, he was there as a counselor. If you were in corporate America uh, or any part of that world, he was there. She talked about when her husband passed away, he was there for her. He was, he was there no matter what your life what you were going through in your life, whether it was joyful or sorrowful or one in which you needed advice and counsel. Um, and he just was, and, you know, you could also get him to come to your service at church and preach. He loved to preach. In fact, at one point he wanted to be, if you read his book, Vernon can read, he, he thought about uh, going into the into religious uh, service, but somehow he decided that law, lawyering was um, as noble, uh, but Vernon could preach. There is no doubt about it. The brother could preach, and he loved to preach. <laughs> he, um, the thing that I, I think as, as we, and oftentimes, oftentimes, um, people only pay attention to the most recent things. And people look at advisors of the president and things along those lines. Um, but to make that transition, and it really is a sharp transition, to transition from that civil rights work to the National Urban League, thir 30 years old, 30, following uh, the death of Whitney Young, the tragic death of Whitney Young drowning in Lagos, Nigeria, and then leading the Urban League and leaving in his early 40s and then having a completely new uh, career. And, and, and of course, when it comes to being a lawyer, a lobbyist, presidential advisor, corporate titan, um, it, 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 sh it shows just, just uh, the levels, if you will, of, of Vernon Jordan, where he wasn't going to be defined solely by one thing. But let me tell you who is responsible for that, because to be sure, Vernon is responsible for his adult life. But the person who is responsible for the man that Vernon is, is his mother. She is the one who created the armor for him that enabled him to to just do all the things that he has done. I mean, starting at a very early age. I'm sure somebody on the show must have talked about how they grew up in a housing project. But the way in which she lived in such an honorable existence that it wasn't like the housing project was some place for poor black people. It was noble. 
he she created a noble environment for him when they had she was a caterer she catered to white people and yet she didn't cater to them she was full of her own i guess you could say self-esteem which she transmitted to vernon and she would the other way that she helped him again uh be the person he became was to ensure that he attended church services in sunday school and then in church and both of us grew up in the ame church like glenn eiffel you know preachers kids and uh we learned early on uh the armor that our black church uh created for us and that again was due to his mother now his father was made a big contribution but when you read vernon can read and when you know about vernon's life I think one of the most significant people in his life, even as he reached the highest levels of all the worlds you've been discussing, the person who set him on that path and gave him the armor to endure whatever slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, including getting shot that time, Whatever slings and arrows of outrageous fortune he confront, his mother created the armor for him to be able to withstand. And so I want to give her a shout out too. And and I'm sure that they are now in the land of the ancestors, just being reunited, reunited in a wonderful way. But she was so much the reason Vernon became the man that he did. You talked about um that um that day that assassination attempt fort wayne indiana uh this is the front page of the new york times vernon jordan shot at motel in indiana wounds are severe the doctor said uh he was shot in the back near his spinal cord doctor said the wound was so large he could have put his fist through that wound um he underwent a significant number of surgeries spent 89 days in the hospital um, and the white supremacist was found not guilty by an all-white jury. And that white supremacist later said, I am the one who shot Vernon Jordan. You know, you have people like that who are unrepentant, and we must never forget them because we got a few of them around today. But let me tell you about another one. George Wallace who stood in the door of, of, of in, 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 in his state to try and prevent desegregation. He was, he was a, you know, he was a total racist, a total white supremacist. And you know what, there came a time when he got shot. Well, there came a time when Vernon was in Alabama on a panel speaking, and he said that at the end of that panel, he was starting to get ready to leave, and he looked over at somebody in a wheelchair behind the curtain. He could see the person, but he couldn't quite see who it was. And finally, the program ended, and it was time to get ready to go. And George Wallace, 
the arch segregationist, wheeled himself out and said to Vernon, I had to come to tell you how sorry I am about my past behavior. Now, I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, pro, but not, that may not exactly be what he said. I got it. But You're it, paraphrasing. I got you. Yeah. He, he apologized. And I think that we can't forget that either. I think that, you know, one of the things that I think Vernon would be saying today as we try to process so much of the ugliness that has come back around, because remember he did say what goes around comes around and we have something coming around that is really horrible. But at the same time, we had Vernon Jordan and people like him who said, we can't let that turn us around. And so while it might be difficult and challenging, and some of us don't have the answers, but I think we look to our history and to people like Vernon, who worked with so many people of so many different attitudes, he brought people together and he never gave up on people, which is why George Wallace wheeled out, wheeled himself out in that wheelchair and apologized. Just like years, I think it was some 40 years after the governor of Georgia, Governor Vandiver, had said, no, not one, meaning no, not one black student will ever cross the threshold of this University of Georgia, he said that when the case was going on and he was fighting the case. And yet 40 years later, when Hamilton, they have a, 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 a yearly lecture called the Holmes Hunter Lecture. Burn, um, Skip Gates just did it with me um, back in early, back in January. But he came to one of those events, the 40th anniversary, and he came up to me and like George Wallace, he apologized. So I'm not going to give up on these people. Now, some of them that I've seen do some terrible things recently, I don't know. But I really do think we've got to keep on keeping on, working towards a more perfect union, because that's what Vernon believed in. That's what caused him to take the road, to travel the road that he traveled. And people like him, who worked with him, and who honor him today, people like you, we've got to we've got to figure out how to keep this a more perfect union, or at least work towards it in our lifetimes. And you got a lot longer than I have because I just had my 79th birthday. Happy <laughs> birthday to me! But I'm so happy that I can celebrate Vernon. In the days, because in South Africa, they say you celebrate your birthday for every day you're old. So I'm still celebrating. And as sad as I am about Vernon having left us, in a way, I'm celebrating the life that he helped give me. He uh, was indeed uh, an amazing uh, man, an amazing life and career. Uh, I'll never forget that moment where uh, there was a video of him driving Bill Clinton in a golf cart. That caused a little uh, caused a little drama, and then the following, the next time they played, they flipped it. Bill Clinton was driving Vernon Jordan in the golf cart. Right, right. 
and you know um, people on the vineyard I've been in touch with them and they're all saying what's it going to be like in August with Vernon not being here but I keep writing back telling them his spirit will be there his well, spirit will be there. Ambassador Andrew Young said this uh, he says it to me all the time and we, he said to me just uh, last week we were in Atlanta he said um, people need to stop saying that Martin is dead he said because you're not dead when they talk about you every single day. He said, Martin is still with us. He said, he may not be here physically, he said, but the reality is he is still living with us every single day. And you know, you said a few minutes ago, uh, we've lost a giant. No, we haven't. I don't want to contradict you, my brother. I got you. But we got him. We still have this giant. And thanks to you, he's going to live. And I hope this won't be the last time you do a special on him because we just need to, we need to help our children, our, our children, whether they're now having to do school virtually or if they get the vaccine, get back to school. But you know, I'm sure you know, 85% of the schools in this country don't teach black history. And we got to change that because they need to know about all of our heroes and they need to know about Vernon and people like him so that if we can teach our children young, maybe we won't have the kind of thing we just had back in the nation's capital at the, at the people's house. Teach our children in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from you. But you got to teach them and you got to teach them right. Well, uh, one of the reasons why I created this platform is I didn't have to ask anybody else permission to do something like this. Uh, and for us to be able to have the platform uh, to have all three successors of Vernon Jordan at the National Urban League on at one time, have Ken Chenault on, uh, have you on, uh, is precisely why, because uh, folks will get to see this. And, and those who didn't know, now they'll be able to go go watch that PBS documentary, go get that book, Vernon Can Read, uh, and do the research and find out uh, the great man uh, and what he represented. Shalane Hunter-Gaard, always a pleasure to see you. Uh, we thank you for all the things that you've done, uh, paving the way for black journalists like myself. Uh, and uh, always great talking to you. And tell your daughter I said, what's up? Thank you so much. It's great to see you, and I hope I'll see you again soon. Indeed. Indeed. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thanks a lot. Our final guest is John Hope Bryant. He is the founder of Operation Hope. Uh, he joins us right now. Uh, John, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who have known Vernon Jordan a very long time. Uh, you tweeted that uh, you did not uh, know him long. But one of the things that you did is you made sure to tell him thank you. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, I think he loved your show, Roland. He loved that you that you owned it. He loved that you set the rules, and you speak truth to power, and you do it, you know, without screaming and hollering. You do it. I mean, he was a he was a gentleman's gentleman, right? Um, I, I did want to say thank you. I did say thank you to him. Um, I got some, several funny stories. Um, uh, I was just sitting there thinking about the last time I saw him, which was 2019. We spoke on the program together at. Um, the LBJ Library in, um, in Austin, Texas. And me, Ambassador Young, 
I think Reverend, uh, Rev. John Lewis was there, I believe. Uh, Mark Up the Grove, who runs the library. And of course, the, none other than Vernon Jordan. Um, and I was thinking back then, at, I, I sat there going, this is the first the first leader who went from civil rights to civil rights. Um, by the way, just a factoid, do you know that he was the first CNN interview ever? Yeah, he was in the first, uh, in the first uh, about eight minutes into the first CNN broadcast was uh, a story on him being shot. Yeah, right, and Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter uh, came to, to visit him. You know, you've got this pantheon of early, what I call civil rights leaders, those who have gone from the, the, from the fields to the farms and the farms to the factories. Uh, and then we, and that was sort of, you know, civil war. And then we went from the, 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 the factories to freedom in, in the streets, which was, you know, civil rights movement. And then we went from the streets to the business suites. He did, he did, he did that entire middle passage moment. You've got, you know, Marion Brian Edelman, you've got um, uh, Leon Sullivan, Reverend Leon Sullivan. Uh, you've got um, Reginald Lewis. And you've got Vernon Jordan. Um, there are others, but those are the ones who were signature. Uh, Marion Wright Edelman was the one that, that told Dr. King the next movement was about money. That's the reason he pivoted to the Poor People's Campaign, as you know. She doesn't get credit for that, Children's Defense Fund. Uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan took us to Africa and served on the first corporate board. Reginald Lewis did the first corporate takeover on Wall Street, a billion dollar uh, take corporate takeover. Still a lot of money today. We did it when it was unbelievable for a black man to do it. And Vernon Jordan took us from civil rights to civil rights to the to investment banking, corporate boardroom, and counselor in chief to the to a head of state, President Bill Clinton. Um, and he did it with with finesse and quiet quiet dignity. Whenever I would see Mr. Jordan, he'd give me the Jordan nod. <laughs> And I didn't realize what the Jordan nod was for years, but Ambassador Young broke it down to me. He would see me and he'd give me a nod. The last time I saw him was again in Austin. Roland. The nod was, don't bother me. Uh, you're already covered. <laughs> Ambassador Young's got you. <laughs> uh, don't bother me. Don't, don't, don't come see me. <laughs> don't send me a note. <laughs> don't. <laughs> we all got our little posse. Right. Uh, we bring we bring it up. We and we, and I know you covered because Ambassador Young told me. So don't bother me. <laughs> he didn't tell me that. Ambassador Young told me. <laughs> don't. I said we should have Vernon Jordan speak at the forum. No, nah, don't bother him. He already told me <laughs> you, you invite him. He ain't coming. He said. He said. He said. He said. You you my problem. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, I'm actually playing the video of you speaking at the LBJ Library uh, where that happened. So uh, that's that's how fast uh, uh, we move here. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the thing here, and the reason I wanted you specifically on, because I saw the tweet, because in many ways, you also uh, are doing what Ambassador Andrew Young uh, has done, what, uh, what Vernon Jordan did, and that is to serve as a connector as well. Um, look, the thing is, we all can't do everything. We can't be on every board. We can't get all the money. We can't get all the contracts. We can't know anybody. But it is but it is important to utilize our relationships and contacts to be able to say when someone comes up to us, 
how can I be of service? How can yeah. I assist you? And and one of the things I laugh about, the last time I saw Vernon Jordan uh, was in the Palm Restaurant here in D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. It had to have been, uh, I only go to the Palm Restaurant for two things, two, two times out of the year. My okay. birthday or my wedding anniversary, where I okay. get a piece of chocolate cake. So it was one of those two. It was either right. November 14th or it was April 21st. It was one of okay. those two. Vernon Jordan is sitting in the restaurant, and uh, that was a young lady who had left. It, it was probably in November, because in April, he'd have been in, he'd have been in uh, at the beach. There you go. Well, there was a young lady who had left us at TV One, and the job didn't work out, and so she was trying to come back and get hired. And so Vernon, uh, I walk up to him, Mr. Jordan, good to see you. Roland, good to see you. We're talking. And so then he goes... Um, he said, um, uh, so-and-so, um, she's one of my, one of my uh, mentees, and he starts talking. He said, um, that raspy voice. Is- yeah, that raspy voice, that, 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 that raspy, slow voice, you can hear every single word. And he says, um, um, she's, uh, she, she really needs a job. And I said, well, Vernon, she left. <laughs> And he said, she really needs a job. He goes, she really needs a job, so I would appreciate if uh, if you could hire her back. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like... Really? It really wasn't a request. <laughs> really? Right. I- I'm getting the Vernon Jordan squeeze here. Uh, and, and, okay, fine, we hired her back. Uh, but the point is, uh, he, he looked for out for, for his people. He never did it for himself. It was always for somebody else. No, and uh, you won't. They'll be. They'll. It'll be gone for months now. We're starting hearing about all the people he helped, all the doors he opened, all the folks who he got hired, all the folks whose careers they give him credit for. Uh, I'm sure that President Bill Clinton is weeping right now because that was his boy. That was his. That was his dude. I, I, President Clinton's a friend of both of us, and I love that dude, um, man, Mr. President. But he is. He is going through a personal situation now because uh, Vernon Jordan had the, the character and the courage to do what most people wouldn't do. What, walk in any room, talk to anybody about anything uh, at any time without hesitation and force you to listen to what he had to say slowly. <laughs> um, I, I got a chance to really observe him work a room at the LBJ Library Again, it was one of his last really public events that I'm aware of. And I was with him for a few hours. It was just, it was just masterful, man. He was still the art of the deal, the real, the original, the real art of the deal. Uh, the, the one he didn't write somebody else didn't write his book. He wrote his own. Uh, and you know, I just don't think that people like that get credit that they deserve. Ambassador Young does not get the credit that he deserves, and it, it and it'd be nice to give them their flowers when they're alive. Uh, but I think Roland. For me and you, and for those watching this program, uh, because I was talking to Bishop Jakes this morning, and we were talking about all the, the graduations of folks, uh, his, his generation who are graduating. You know, Hank Aaron passed, you know, several weeks ago, C.T. Vivian. It's a passing of a baton in many ways. They're like, look, I did my part. We don't know how long we're going to live, but we dang sure know we're going to die. I've done my part. Again, it was a Jordan nod. Leave me alone. I'm, <laughs> I've done my part. I'm chilling. 
go see Ambassador Young. I got my mentees. Now it's your turn. Or whoever you are. So I'm watching everybody watch this. It's your turn. We can't just be about me. We gotta be about we. We gotta be we have to realize that it's us. That we're all tied in and bound up together. And that as you, you're succeeding, but you're only succeeding in gaining power so you can give it away. That's the only purpose. Like that's the only reason purpose that God has endowed any of us with any power, money, wealth, is to figure out how to share that power with others so they can come up. And Vernon did that, and Master Young did that, and Reverend C.T. Vivian did that, and Dr. Dorothy Hyde did that, and Mary Wright Edelman did that, and all these heroes and sheroes. We talk about Dr. King, rightly so, but there's also a pantheon uh, of, of this whole ilk. This is the way they were built, man. And and in and, and before COVID, I was concerned that a lot of us, Roland, were just focused on me, myself, and I. Like, I'm tired of talking about me, now you talk about me. They were selfish and self-centered, and, and COVID... And the four-year-old social justice reckoning on Black America, and the economic crisis, and the, the attack on the Capitol—it's a wake-up call to all of us that you can't self-contradict your democracy. These folks gave their lives; so we might have life, but we're going to have to renew this promise daily, which means we all have to get to work, just like they did. Well said, John O'Brien, founder of Operation Hope. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Love you, man. Folks, these type of episodes, we hate to solely do them when one's, someone passes away, but the reality is uh, that's a fact of life. I hope that was okay. This show was created. This show was created for us to be able to celebrate our people in life, but also when they transition. So when you support us, this is what you support. I don't know of any other place.